from the newsroom of the Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzer with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, January 21st. Today, debating the rules of the impeachment trial, a very stable genius, and your impeachment questions answered. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment. So the Senate impeachment trial will probably get more interesting at a later date. I note the presence in the House of the Senate, in the, cha- in the Senate chamber, of the managers on the part of the House of Representatives and counsel for the President of the United States. Mr. Chief Justice. The majority leader is recognized. What today is about is essentially one setting the kind of ground rules for each side's argument heading into this debate. For the further information of all senators, I'm about to send a resolution to the desk providing for an outline of the next steps in these proceedings. Senate Resolution 483 to provide for related procedures concerning the articles of impeachment against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. Mr. Manager Schiff, are you a proponent or opponent of this motion? Managers are in opposition to this resolution. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Cipollone, are you a proponent or opponent of the motion? Mr. Chief Justice, we are a proponent of the motion. Then, Mr. Cipollone, your side may proceed first, and we'll be able to reserve rebuttal time if you wish. And two is haggling about the rules. A trial without all the relevant evidence is not a fair trial. They said in their brief, we have overwhelming evidence and they're afraid to make their case. So what does a fair trial look like in the context of impeachment? The short answer is it looks like every other trial. Basically saying how this process should be handled. At the same time, the actual changes that have been made to the rules so far are things that have been handled off of the Senate floor. These are not things that were necessarily being voted on as amendments or anything like that. They're basically Republican leadership having responded to concerns from swing vote senators who were a little bit concerned about certain ways in which the rules were different than they were 21 years ago when Bill Clinton was being impeached. My name is Aaron Blake, senior political reporter for The Fix. So what are some of these points of contention when it comes to the ground rules of how this trial is going to be handled? Well, the big one is obviously how we are going to address potential new evidence and new witnesses. We, of course, have seen John Bolton, the president's former national security advisor, say he is willing to testify if, in fact, he is called to do so. Republicans have shown no great desire to have him actually do that. But all of these things are things that can be addressed by the rules, which are being voted on Tuesday, and then by later votes that the senators can take as the process moves along. 
as things are set up right now, the votes on new witnesses and on new evidence would take place after extensive opening arguments for both sides and after the senators have time to ask questions of each side's impeachment managers. And you also said that one of these rules was already changed because of concerns from Republicans about how this trial in some ways might be different from what happened during the Clinton impeachment trial. Right. So there were basically four kind of smaller ways in which the rules put forward by Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, differed from what we saw in the Clinton impeachment. These rule changes changed two of those to be more similar to Clinton. One is that while the initial McConnell rules stated that the evidence that the House collected would be subject to a vote, the senators would have to vote on whether to include that at a later juncture, that will now be concluded automatically subject to some objections by the president and his legal team. Uh, So that basically takes something that they needed to vote to get it in and makes it a situation where the president's team needs to object to it and have to argue that it should be excluded. Uh, This was something that was objected to apparently by Senator Susan Collins, who is a very important swing vote here. Also some reporting that uh, Senator Rob Portman uh, from Ohio was involved in this. The other significant change is that the opening arguments, which initially were set to take place over Uh, 24 hours in two days for each side, so 12 hours each day. Those are long days. A very long night for all of us. Uh, They will now be handled in the same way they were handled in the Clinton impeachment, which is 24 hours over three days. So there will be eight-hour blocks instead of 12-hour blocks. So the fact that Collins and a couple of these other middle-of-the-road Republican senators have been kind of asserting themselves in this situation, does that tell us anything about how they might be navigating the impeachment trial going forward? It's an interesting development uh, for one, for a couple of reasons. One is that these rules were put out 18 hours ago. You would think they were the kinds of things that McConnell would check in with the likes of Susan Collins on, but apparently either that didn't happen or she kind of didn't object at first and decided later on that she objected. Um, the second reason is, you know, Senators like Collins have really been playing very careful, very circumspect, keeping their powder dry, not wanting to commit one way or the other, uh, really to the frustration to a lot of Democrats who would prefer that she would say, I want John Bolton to testify. I want all this new evidence. Um, The idea that she would assert herself on this has to be a little bit encouraging for them. On the other hand, this is a relatively small thing in which she's basically – pushing for a small rule change that brings things more in line with how the uh, Clinton impeachment trial was handled and may not change things really substantively moving forward. Watching what the likes of Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Lamar Alexander, uh, Rob Portman, watching what they do is what's really significant here because they are the ones who are going to be able to impact having new evidence, having new witnesses. It's really all about them, and the rest is kind of window dressing. What's also interesting about what has been happening on the Senate floor today is that this is the first time that we're actually hearing the president's lawyers talking. And it's particularly interesting because a couple of those lawyers are people that were just hired to this team, one of them being Kenneth Starr, who people know from the Clinton impeachment trial. He was the prosecutor then. Now he's on the side of the defense. And also Alan Dershowitz, who made his name defending O.J. Simpson. So what do we 
what can we tell so far from what President Trump's lawyers are like and how they're going to argue in defense of the president? I think we saw that most well defined on Tuesday when after Pat Cipollone, who's the uh, White House counsel, gave a brief opening and then handed things over to the Democrats. Uh, Adam Schiff spoke for a while. It came back. Then we saw Jay Sekulow introduced. Do you want to know about due process? I'll tell you about due process. Never before in the history of our country has a president been confronted with this kind of impeachment proceeding in the House. Jay Sekulow is the president's outside personal attorney, talk radio host. He has been with President Trump for a very long time. Not terribly surprising to see him be very animated and very forceful with the things that he alleges and with his arguments. They were told that they were obstructing. What does Mr. Schiff mean by obstructing? He means that unless you do exactly what he says, regardless of your constitutional rights, then you're obstructing. After that, though, Cipollone came back and uh, presented his case and really kind of pulled from the same uh, playbook. Um, we saw him uh, in, his, in his initial stint there use the word ridiculous six times. By the way, I was surprised to hear that. Did you realize you're on trial? Mr. Nadler's putting you on trial. Everybody's on trial except for them. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The White House counsel is technically a lawyer for the White House and not the president personally. But what we saw was a very political, very something more in line with what you'd expect from uh, uh, Jay Sekulow's of this world, from a Ken Starr, from Alan Dershowitz, people who maybe are are able to speak more freely or appear on cable news. Um, but I think it shows that this is going to be a united effort and it's going to be very focused on process. The idea that the president has been wronged here and that the Democrats have been out to impeach the president from day one. Aaron Blake is a political reporter for The Fix. Friends, delegates, and fellow Americans, I humbly and gratefully accept your nomination for the presidency of the United States. This was a really memorable line in the president's acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention in Cleveland in 2016. And there he is, the most unlikely nominee for a major party to be president on a stage that was basically an LED manifestation of his self-image. Nobody knows the system better than me. And he spoke about himself in that speech. It was less about bringing the country together and what everyone in the country can do and more about me. Which is why... I alone can fix it. I'm Philip Rucker, the White House Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. I'm Carol Lennig. I'm an investigative reporter on the national desk for The Washington Post. For Carol and me, that was really a moment that epitomized what this presidency would become. It was a presidency based on solipsism, on ego, on his vainglorious pursuit of power. Phil and Carol have just published a new book called A Very Stable Genius, Donald J. Trump's Testing of America. It's a deeply reported, behind-the-scenes portrait of the first three years of the Trump presidency. Phil and I 
have been covering the Trump presidency for three years in all its dizzying array. There was a crisis every day and a big news headline every hour. And we felt like it was important to step back and say, what do we make of this? We need to stop chasing every little tiny detail and figure out what's really going on with this presidency and make sense of it for ourselves and for the readers of The Washington Post. This is a president who scrambled to survive every day, but it was always about himself, about how to protect himself, to elevate himself, to fluff up his image. And by the end of our story at the three-year mark of this presidency, it's become a presidency of one. And I think that for anyone who has paid attention to the news over the past three years, we could all cite examples of when President Trump, through the way that he's spoken or acted publicly, that he has demonstrated moments where he thinks about himself in this way. But what you all have been able to do in the course of your reporting is find all these other moments behind the scenes when it's clear that the president has this outsized sense of himself and that that's apparent in how he conducts himself. It's really true, Martine. And one thing that was sort of shocking to us is how often, according to our reporting, people who were his lead advisors found him without information, rejecting information and advice, and still plowing forward and insisting that he alone could resolve this matter or was the expert in it. A good example of it was the Secretary of State at the time, Rex Tillerson, had spent copious hours with Vladimir Putin in his job as the CEO of Exxon. And he was trying to help this new president, Donald Trump, understand how Putin operated. But Donald Trump didn't accept that advice. And in fact, after meeting Putin for one moment, basically told Tillerson, you know, I've got this. I understand the guy. I know more about him than you do now. There's also this really amazing moment where you all find out about a meeting that President Trump had at the Pentagon. Can you take us back to what happened there and what you were able to find out about what transpired in that meeting? Martine, this was an inflection point in the Trump presidency. It was the summer of 2017, about six months into the administration. And uh, Secretary Mattis, the defense secretary, Gary Cohn, the top economic advisor at the White House, and Secretary of State Tillerson felt the president didn't have the knowledge, didn't have the the command over military deployments around the world, over even the fundamental basics of geography. Where are different countries located? He just didn't seem to get it. And so they staged this intervention in the tank, which is the most sacred space for military officers inside the Pentagon, where decisions of war and peace are made. It's actually called the tank? It's it's called the tank, yeah. And, and you know, this is a meeting that's been, was on the president's public schedule. It's been reported about, but we found in our recent reporting for this book, new layers to the story and and some really emotional moments inside that room where the president dressed down the commanding officers around the table. He told them, you guys are waging a loser war in Afghanistan. And then at one point he said, you are all a bunch of babies and dopes. He said that to a room full of generals? He did. And and at the end of the meeting, Secretary of State Tillerson turned to some of the others in the room and, and called the president an effing moron. Wow. What elicited that from President Trump? What was it about that meeting that he responded so aggressively to? 
I feel like this moment is a real window into how this administration operates, but especially in a window into the mind of Donald Trump. We can't say exactly what he was thinking, but the way he was acting was, you're not going to tell me how the world works. You're not going to tell me why we need bases in South Korea. You're not going to tell me anything because I'm a real estate developer. I'm a billionaire. I know how the world works. And it wasn't so much anger that he was expressing as much as like, I'm the boss. There was something really stunning about this this episode for us, because while it has been reported elsewhere, we were shocked at how many people basically had promised each other they would not share the words of Donald Trump. They were so hurtful to them. And, you know, usually as reporters, we think of hurtful as being like a curse word or a dressing down. But remember, this is the commander in chief dressing down Jim Mattis, Mad Dog Mattis. And he also said to them, I wouldn't go to war with you people. That was the line that that pierced them. And there are other moments, too, of frankly, like a a real cruelty that is exhibited to people who work for the president. That's right. You know, we see the cruelty come out uh, on Twitter from time to time or when the president makes comments at his rallies uh, making fun of people. Written by a nice reporter. Now the poor guy, you got to see this guy. Oh, I don't know what I said. Oh, I don't remember. Was that a man or a woman? Because he needs a haircut more than I do. That guy's got a serious weight problem. Go home, start exercising. Get him out of here, please. But in our reporting, we found it goes even deeper than that. The way he would talk to the people, the members of his cabinet, the way he would talk to uh, Chief of Staff John Kelly, now Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, the way he disrespected the Attorney General for for the first year of the administration, Jeff Sessions. Uh, It was cruel. It was demeaning. It was belittling. And it all seemed to be built, according to our reporting, uh, around the president's desire to establish dominance over the people in the government. What were some of the actual examples of that, of of the things that he said to, to those officials? One of the scenes that Phil and I both were stunned by involved the president mimicking H.R. McMaster, his national security advisor, when McMaster, who's a general, came into the room to give one of the most important briefings you can give uh, anyone in the world, any leader, which is the presidential daily brief, the president would uh hoist up his chest, start to beat it and say, hello, reporting for duty. I'm General McMaster here to give you your briefing. And um, many people in the room uh, were so upset that they started to feel incredible pity, even though some of them didn't really appreciate McMaster's philosophy on world policy and national security. They felt such pity for him in those moments. It seems like sometimes when things transpire behind the scenes related to the president, that we hear about it pretty immediately, that somebody comes forward really fast and and finds a reporter to tell them about it and and share what happened. But these are things that weren't shared immediately, but that you all were able to get people to talk about. Why did people want to talk to you for this book? Like, what do you think it is about the fact that they had time to reflect on these moments that made them— want to eventually come forward. Yeah, we have found through these three years that a lot of sources in the administration are willing to talk, are willing to share details 
about what happened in real time, but we never feel like we get the full story in real time. And what Carol and I found uh, hitting that pause button and going back to do long in-depth interviews with people, some of them who've already left the government, others who are currently working uh, for the president, is that when they're able to sit down and really reflect on what happened in the past and to do it for the purposes of a history book, of, of telling the full story to the public, they're so much more forthcoming and, and you get a new layer of emotion and of dialogue and, and a fuller understanding of the context of everything else that was happening. And some of that is missing in the day-to-day, but when you step back, you see the full picture. And then a lot of your reporting also sheds a new light on some of the people around the president, both people who work for him and also members of his family. Talk a little bit about that. It started with a group of people who were hopeful that they could guide this president and shape policy in the vein that they thought was going to be best suited for our country and their own philosophies. But over time, those people who hoped to guide him have been basically driven out of the room. In terms of the family members, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump still have incredible power in this White House. And many of the aides that watched them operate, felt that they were very much out of their depth and that they shared the dangerously uninformed qualities of the president, nor did they want to seek an education in the areas where they were going to be making their stamp on the world. Because oftentimes, I think Ivanka Trump specifically is thought of as the one person that the president always listens to, that he has a real respect for her and respect for her ideas, but that seems like a problem in some cases. Well, it was a problem, uh, according to the people we interviewed for this book, in particular as it related to the Mueller investigation, and especially in those early months of the Russia probe. Uh, Ivanka Trump and Jared, uh, but but mostly Ivanka, would breeze in and out of meetings that the president was having uh, with his personal attorneys. She wanted to, to know what was going on, uh, wanted updates. And the lawyers uh, who were advising their client, the president of the United States, felt that was entirely inappropriate. There was no attorney-client privilege. There were serious discussions among the legal team about how inappropriate it was for the president's children to be so involved in his personal affairs. There was one other moment that you reported on that is really minor in the scheme of things, but I thought was really insightful. And it's about reading the Constitution. Tell me about that. So this is uh, very early on in the administration in March of 2017, and uh, HBO uh, was putting together a documentary about the Constitution. The executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years and... Together with the vice president. And the idea was was a neat one. They would they would have uh, all the living presidents and some former vice presidents all read portions of the Constitution and then mash it up together. And so the uh, the film crew came to the White House to tape uh, President Trump. They also taped Vice President Pence. And as Trump was reading Article Two, that's the portion of the Constitution that he selected to read. He stumbled over the words. He had a really difficult time speaking that language. He was clearly not familiar uh, with the text itself. The the camera crew, other people who were in the room felt very uncomfortable because of his discomfort with the language of the Constitution. And at one point he said uh, during the taping, this is like a foreign language. Uh, Those are the president's words. And it was just a moment, um, you know, not consequential in terms of the decisions that he made in office, but revealing about his lack of preparation to take on this job and, and what his advisors told us was an alarming gap in his knowledge about American history. 
Because the other people that that were participating in this project of reading the Constitution, the impression was that they had either practiced or or knew the Constitution by heart. There was one person in the room that we spoke with who said that they never expected to feel pity for Donald Trump, but they did feel sorry for him watching him stumble through these words. And I remember the person saying, you know, if he was going to take this job, he should have had a basic understanding of the Constitution, and he should have at least read it before he walked into this office. I'm really curious about what it, it was like for both of you in writing this book, because I think that as reporters, you are often writing very quickly about the actions or the words of the president. Did you feel like there was something different about how you could approach the writing here? You know, overall, I feel really strongly that we let reporting and our journalism chops lead us and guide us, and they were the the platform upon which all of this writing is done. Solid, exhaustive, rigorous reporting. But you are right about one thing, which is with the the luxury of being able to look more deeply into certain elements and to look for those patterns that Phil was mentioning, we start to have to come to some conclusions. If the president with almost every single cabinet member, is it has an abusive management style, what does that result in? What's the consequence? If he consistently is ignorant of world geography and refuses to take information from his briefers, what is the consequence? So you're right that we come away with some conclusions because, again, based on the people we spoke to, they had come to those conclusions. Why do you think people like the president? If there are all these moments of, of his callousness and of his kind of willful ignorance. It's interesting. You know, the book concludes in Orlando. For the last two and a half years, we have been under siege. It's the middle of the summer of 2019, and the president was down there at massive rally to kick off his reelection campaign. And we interviewed voters there, uh, supporters of the president, about not only why they like him, but also... You know, why do they believe him when he says that the Russia investigation was a hoax and a witch hunt? And with the Mueller report, we won. And now they want a do-over. They want a do-over. Let's do it again. Didn't work out too well. Let's do it again. When he says Robert Mueller totally exonerated him, when we know uh, the facts of the report do not totally exonerate him. No president should ever have to go through this again. It is so bad for our great country. A hoax. They just believe what he says. They've bought into what he's saying, and they see him as their champion, uh, as the person who's fighting for them, as the person who's changing Washington for the better, uh, who's not afraid uh, to call out the enemies. And and there's a lot of power and, and emotional resonance there that we saw on the ground and that I think informs this book. Phil Rucker and Carol Lennig cover the White House for The Post. Their new book is called A Very Stable Genius, Donald J. Trump's Testing of America. It's out in stores today. Last week, we asked you for your questions about the impeachment, and we got this one from a listener in Vancouver named Michael Picard. I have a question about Lev Parnas, and it's perhaps an obvious one. Uh, Where did 
his money come from, the money he was throwing around since before the 2016 election in order to cultivate relationships with high-level Republicans and pursue prospective business opportunities. Where did that money come from? Is this still a good time? Yes. So it's a really good question. We went to Roz Helderman for help in answering this. She covers political investigations for The Post. You have this world of campaign contributors who try to get access to top officials, even the president himself, by making these big campaign contributions. And sometimes you look at their financial past and it doesn't seem as though they actually have access to that kind of liquid cash sitting around to actually be paying $300,000, $500,000, million to a super PAC to get that kind of access. And you have to wonder, where is that money really coming from? Lev Parnas is a businessman from Florida, and he is, as we have often referred to him in stories, a Giuliani associate. In 2018, he hired Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal attorney, uh, to be sort of a paid pitch man for his company, which was called Fraud Guarantee. And then they became close friends, and he ends up helping Giuliani find people in Ukraine who have information about Joe Biden. So he becomes something of a of a fixer uh, to Giuliani in Ukraine. Parnas made a series of large campaign contributions. And we know where some of the money came from, at least as alleged by federal prosecutors who have charged him with campaign finance violations. But I would say not all of it. So prosecutors say that when he and his partner Igor Fruman made the largest of their donations, which was $325,000 to a pro-Trump super PAC that happens in the spring of 2018, that they made that donation in the name of a company, but the company actually had no income and no assets, and it was actually money that came from a private loan to Igor Fruman. They also say that some of the money he paid to other campaign contributions in 2018 and 2019 uh, was actually money from a Russian investor who wanted to break into the cannabis business in the United States. So that forms the basis of the criminal charges against him. It's illegal for foreigners to donate in the United States to political campaigns. Also, it's illegal to misrepresent where money is coming from. So he's pleaded not guilty to that. But I think that the caller gets at a really good mystery, which is the first of Parnas's campaign contributions was $50,000. It's not a tiny amount to a campaign committee for President Trump that comes in October of 2016. And at the time, he had a lot of debts. He had a lot of creditors. We actually don't know where that money came from. It's an area of very active, ongoing reporting for us. If you have a question about the impeachment, we'd love to hear it. Record a short voice memo on your phone, include your name and where you're from, and email it to postreports at washpost.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 
For more impeachment updates from The Washington Post, check out our impeachment podcast feed. It's updated daily with stories from Post Reports, along with our other news podcasts here at The Post, The Daily 202, and Can He Do That? Subscribe on your podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.